John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And uh, I think we got a pretty good show today. We're going to be talking about an accident that, John, it's right up your alley. Every time we end the show, you're always talking about pre-flight planning. And this is a classic example of poor or in-flight planning uh, with a guy who uh, was famous to an extent. He was a professional baseball player named Corey Lytle flying a Cirrus SR-20. And um, he was a, a new owner to this airplane. Uh, they're on the East Coast. And um, him and a friend of his who happened to be a commercial instrument rated pilot, flight instructor, were going to ferry the airplane back to California after they had spent some time in the New York area with uh, with their respective families. And um, on this particular day, uh, both pilots had said goodbye to their respective families, put them on a commercial flight to send them home, and they were going to ferry the airplane then out to California. But as you talk about, John, all the time, and we talk about it with other accidents, and that is, you don't just, you know, kick the tires, light the fire, get up and go, especially if you're going to do something that you haven't done before. Like in this case, uh, these guys were going to go take a little sightseeing trip around the New York area, especially around stat the Statue of Liberty. But they didn't plan for this. They really didn't understand what they were doing. They just thought they were going to jump in the airplane. Uh, they were told to remain um, clear of the Class B airspace. And, and fly the uh, the Hudson River or the East River um, flyway there. And that does take a lot of pre-planning because we have seen other accidents that have occurred in that same corridor of airspace, especially mid-air collisions between helicopters and fixed wing. And we've seen a number of helicopter accidents in that particular area. So, I mean, it's just frustrating when you start reading these reports about guys like this, and it could have happened to anybody. It just happened to be Corey Lytle, um, who was a pitcher for the Yankees. So, of course, that brought a high level of attention. And then on top of it, it was this the, the cause and circumstance where they flew this airplane into the side of an apartment building at an elevation of about 500 feet AGL. And 
it just you you can't help but shake your head when you're reading a lot of the things as pilots that it's like, why did they do this? Why didn't they do this? Why did they continue to do this? Why did they make that bad decision? How obvious is it that they were going to center punch a building? And it's it's just very frustrating. And I know, um, you know, with me reading it, and I know with both of you reading it, you just got to shake your head and go, what was going on? And what were they thinking? I mean, if he made started to make that turn, he could have just gone straight. He could have gone up and violated the airspace. I mean, there were so many ways out of this. He could have flown down some of those big wide avenues. Yeah. And and again, you know, when we talk about pre-flight planning, this is something that they hadn't done before. It does take a little choreography, uh, not only between those two to really understand what they're doing, but there's some choreography with air traffic control. Because they are to remain clear of Class B airspace. The the uh, floor of the airspace is around 1,500 feet. They had been flying at various altitudes between 600 and 800 feet. Um, they got up to the north end of the river. And then guess what? They got to turn around. <laughs> and um, and so I'll, again, call in, I'll call in and get permission to, to, to fly. I'll well, take the violation. Well, th- that's the point, John, is that Again, and I know that all three of us, especially you flying now, Todd, and I'm doing a lot of flying, where you're always concerned that if you hear that little voice in your head called ATC and you violate or you breach some piece of airspace, whether it's intentional or inadvertent, you're always afraid of the ramifications. And there is there is history of pilots who have gotten themselves into the into trouble in that same segment of airspace for that very reason they're fearful of the fallout if they don't comply and now how does that factor into decision making and trying to do something um, whether it's with your own limited personal skills abilities and knowledge as a pilot or the or exceeding the capabilities of the airplane in an effort to comply and rather than just do the prudent thing call atc say look um, we got up, uh, you know, we need to get up into the airspace. We need to climb, you know, 500 feet or a thousand feet. We'll get out of the airspace as soon as possible. Um, but we're trying to turn around. You got to confess because you confess, um, one, you'll be around hopefully to confess later on, or at least answer to the confession. Uh, but two, you're not going to center punch a, an apartment building. And I know, Todd, that when you were looking at this, you, you're asking the questions because we were having a brief chat before we got on the air about these very things. Now, one of the fortunate okay. things, if you can call it fortunate about this, is this happened in New York. And basically anything that happens in New York gets an extraordinary amount of attention. And I think the level of detail in this report reflected that uh, public uh, interest in it because there was quite a bit of information in the um, public docket and quite a bit of photographic and uh, video uh, support for this. So there's a many lessons to be learned from this because this is a well-documented event. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, some of the uh, hardware, the electronic hardware and the aircraft, they couldn't recover data from it. But again, there was substantial radar and visual data and eyewitness data, not to mention witness marks on the sides of buildings and such, that could uh, be a lesson to, for all of us to learn, including the thought process of uh, doing a joyride, which is basically this. 
They had planned to fly from the East Coast to the West Coast. And this seemed to be something, uh, have a little fun, fly by the Statue of Liberty, fly around Manhattan, then head west. Well, again, when you look at it, and John, sorry to cut you off, but when you look at it, um, again, without any pre-planning or proper pre-planning, they never utilized all the available airspace at their altitude to commence this turn. And because they shortcutted the turn and they didn't really use the full performance of the airplane when things were starting, uh, you know, to uh, to become evident that they were going to be um, heading towards some buildings. Plus, it's apparent that they didn't understand the direction of the wind because they ended up drifting into the city, uh, into the cityscape from over the water which again hampered their ability to complete the turn but it, there was still performance left in the airplane had they increased the bank angle of the turn based on the calculations that the NTSB did had they used the full width of the east river that too would have aided in in getting the uh, turn completed so again they really didn't have the situational awareness they needed and what strikes me Okay, Corey Lytle didn't have a lot of flight time. And Todd, I know you dissected some of that, but you have a flight instructor on board. You have a guy who supposedly knows these kinds of things or should know these kinds of things because part of his process as a flight instructor is to teach this kind of planning, exercise the planning, and then, of course, have very good situational awareness for situations like this. You know, I, I wonder why he didn't turn to the right to one, because the buildings are not as high on the uh, east side of the East River. You know, you got the, the island out there. They're not as high. You know, there's plenty of buildings, but, they, you know, on that side of the, of the river, they might be uh, 10 or 12 or 14 stories high instead of the 50 or 60 on the Manhattan side. So... Again, John, it comes down to what did they think? I mean, did they think they were going to have an airspace issue? Did they think that they were going to violate something? I mean, what influenced their decision not only to initiate that turn to the left, given the fact that that would be the direction they needed, the reverse direction, if you will. But, you know, I mean, how far into the turn do you have to get when you start, you know, I mean, you got to be questioning. We're not going to make this. This isn't looking good. We got to come up with plan B. We got to do something different rather than let's just keep doing what we're doing. And then when you're staring at a building and you continue to fly into the side of the building, come on, really? I mean, you still, there is a point in the turn where you're advancing your, your, your view that this isn't working out. I've got to do something different. At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now. Todd, you work with us right now because you're back flying with training. I mean, you're constantly, I'm sure your instructor's going, you know, dude, what are you doing? I mean, you got to, 
you got to keep processing well ahead of the uh, the airplane. And that's the difficulty. And again, it doesn't stop even when you have experience staying ahead of the airplane. And there's no real uh, detail as to what was the pilot in command's experience with flying in, in tight spaces like this. No indication he'd ever done something like this before or flew in canyon areas or mountainous areas. This is something where there's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, you have buildings, you have the wind, you have whatever uh, turbulence that might have caused. Then they, you have people talking into his ear. You have his instructor possibly saying things as well. And when you have this sort of thing going on, every person's different. But adrenaline and tunnel vision tend to go hand in hand. And this might have been one of those cases. And both pilots had, had done a lot of flying in California, like you said. So unless they were, you know, east of L.A., into those mountain areas, you know, heading towards uh, Nevada and things like that or or uh, the mountain ranges of, of California, which doesn't sound like they were doing much of. Um, yeah, there aren't a lot of high obstructions and you're not definitely flying through the city of Los Angeles trying to do things like this. So, uh, again, you bring a lack of experience in. Um, the instructor who they say he's just a pilot rated passenger, he wasn't given formal flight instruction, even though, um, you know, he holds those credentials. You don't just sit there with your arms folded when things are going to hell in a handbasket. You know, he had the more experience. He was the more experienced pilot in that cockpit. You know, what was he doing? Trying to coach him through it. You got to do something more than that. And again, you know, take take man to the airplane, fly the airplane, use the maximum performance. But the board in their investigation found that uh, this uh, commercially rated flight instructor pilot who's sitting in the right seat didn't have any serious time. So did that hold him back from jumping on the controls and trying to do something uh, to say salvage this bad situation? I mean, there are a lot of things that probably influenced the decision-making and it was poor decision-making. And again, we have talked about Advisory Circular 60-22 about aeronautical decision-making. We've talked about it in multiple accidents on this show. The board also cites it in their report. They did a good job. It was This was kind of a mini blue cover type investigation. One, because it was high visibility, but all the board members got involved with it because they're the ones that uh, signed off on uh, on the report, unlike some of the other um, general aviation accidents. So um, there were a lot of comments. Um, Robert Sumwalt uh, definitely talked about it in a um, in a discussion at the very end of the report about decision making and influence and poor judgment and poor decision making. And again, what do we have to do in the aviation community to emphasize these things that you don't just go out there, fire up and fly off? especially if you're going to do something that you've never done before. I mean, look, we see accidents all the time going into Oshkosh. There's so much pre-planning that goes into Oshkosh and the encouragement that if you are going to fly to Oshkosh, which is the largest air show in the world, and they're putting multiple airplanes on multiple on the same runway at the same time and parallel, the, the you're landing on a taxiway and a runway. You don't just do that for the first time without really doing any prep. And this is the same thing because that is a VFR corridor, because there is a mix of traffic, helicopters and fixed wing. And while, yes, I'm going to go sightsee, you got to be aware of, uh, of what you were talking about, John. What's my plan A? 
And then what's my plan B if plan A ain't working out? And, you know, if you look at the picture that, that, that's in the report uh, of the building that he hit, on the, uh, the right-hand side of the building, there's a great big open area. It looks like about two blocks that they easily could have dodged the building and accepted the violation of flying over, over the city, but missed the building and go for the uh, climb up. It was at 330 feet. The building yeah. was only 500 feet tall. Yeah. And for so, those who are unfamiliar with that part of New York, while New York is, Manhattan is known for tall buildings, they're generally to the south of where they were. And had they gone directly west, there was nothing even close to being an Empire State Building or uh, type building in that area. So, and presumably, having pitched for the Yankees, he's familiar, at least from a ground level, with what the geography of that place was. So it's not like he was unfamiliar with uh, ways out of there. Yeah, and it's just, again, you know, there were bailouts. Why they decided to try and continue that turn, especially as the building was looming. Um, you know, halfway through the turn, they could have leveled the wings, and if necessary, that airplane has a parachute. You know, you want to give up flying? You want to resign yourself to this is a lost cause? Then you know what? You pull the power to idle and pull that chute. Yeah, you're going to drift and you're going to probably ping pong off a bunch of stuff, but you're probably going to be alive to talk about it. So, I mean, it, again, it is about plan A. It is about plan B and maybe even plan C in some cases. But it all starts before you ever leave the ground. And, and again, yes. how do we emphasize that? Um, as a flight instructor, I have to emphasize it with the people I fly with. But as a pilot flying by him or herself, you should be taking that responsibility on. Am I properly prepared for the flight that I'm going to conduct? I mean, 91.3, uh, the FARs tell you that you are the pilot in command. With great, <laughs> with great authority comes great responsibility, you know, and, and all the powers of being a pilot in command. You can't just get up there and think you can wing it, uh, per se, um, doing something that you haven't done before. This yeah, is now, given, but given the fact they were going to take this airplane this very day and head west to California, they, I mean, that's not a willy-nilly flight. All right? You've got to do your planning well ahead. You've got to plot, plot your course, where you're going to stop for fuel, so they had to think about this beforehand. So was this little excursion around the city an afterthought? Something, oh, let's do that before we leave type thing. And they got themselves in trouble. I, I mean, that's something we'll never know. But for all the pilots that are listening to us out there, you really need to do a very thorough job of pre-planning your flight. Whether it's a short one, a long one, or anything in between. You need to do put your brain power to whatever you're going to do before you do it. Don't get caught in the, into this. Uh, you know, it's no different than flying in the canyons in Colorado, going up there, and you you know get get uh, too much altitude, and not enough engine, and you can't turn around in a box canyon. Right? Yeah. And so a lot of people, and I've heard pilots say that that this this was like flying in a box canyon, but no, it wasn't really because he had options available to him. One is just dodge this big building. He probably would have been out of it. Right? Yeah. Put the power to it and climb over the building, 200 feet, 
Uh, he might have been able to make that if he did it while he was still over the river. And as you said, Greg, you know, exceed the uh, turn bank angle. All right, so you're going to stall a wing. You stall it over the, the water, and, and uh, with power on, you probably recover it in time. Well, he might not have been that good to do that. But but again, I mean, we're all taught how to do steep turns and, and uh, turns about a point and things like that. I mean, those are maximum performance um, you know, maneuvers that we're, we're taught to do. Uh, I mean, you got a flight instructor on board. Okay, he doesn't have a lot of, he doesn't have any experience in the Cirrus, but you got to do something. <laughs> you got to do something. Right. Uh, and then if you're that ignorant to the airplane that you're going to fly all the way across country, then you shouldn't be in the airplane. I mean, at minimum, somebody has to know the flight manual. Somebody should be familiar, uh, you know, with the operating uh, performance uh, specs in the airplane. And, you know, you don't just go. It's just we see that too often, and it is very frustrating because damage to aircraft and loss of life is so frustrating when we can sit here and talk about all the options, but the bigger question is why? Why? Why did an accident like this happen? So you know, I just gave a presentation last week, and one of the and, and talking about, and part of it was talking about the investigators, NTSB investigators, and uh, and other people like emergency response people, and it really is frustrating from all of our point of view that we work accidents after they happen. It's frustrating when you look at the facts and see that it was avoidable. It was avoidable if you did your job, use your head, plan A, plan A, B, and C. Know what you're going to do and know what you're going to do if things don't work out well. And, you know, as all of us who do investigations, you just shake your head and, and you uh, feel the pain for the families that are left behind. The kids without parents, and you know, we see so much of that, uh, and all because of people who don't use uh, their abilities that they've demonstrated already that they have, and then all of a sudden they don't use them. Yeah, and and we saw that when we were talking about Roy Halliday and and those kinds of accidents where you just shake your head, and but you know we have to remember they're human just like the rest of us. Um, they are not infallible. Uh, the decision-making, especially when it comes to aeronautical decision-making, is influenced by a lot of things. Unfortunately, in in the Lytle case and in the Halliday case and in a lot of general aviation accidents, we don't have any recorders. And as a single pilot operator, you're not talking to yourself on a regular basis. So you're not narrating what's going on. And it's left to the investigator to try and fill in those gaps, which is the hardest thing in the world, um, you know, because you're now going to base it on circumstantial evidence, if you will. You're going to be talking to people. What kind of pilot? I mean, if you talk about, I mean, in the NTSB, when they dissected the pilot's performance, they were talking about Corey Lytle primarily. They went back and talked to other flight instructors that had flown, and he had flown with six other flight instructors. And they go, oh, yeah, he was a great pilot for his experience, very well-versed, very conscientious, this, that, and the other. Great. My question is, why is he dead? If he was that good and he was that conscientious, then why is he dead? And, and you know, we hear that kind of statement all the time. Oh, he was the best pilot. You know, he would have never have done that. Well, he did do it. 
So why? And, and that's the hard part of our job as investigators is to try and make logical sense of illogical or irrational decisions that typically would not have been made by that particular human under those conditions. So, um, you know, yeah, are there lessons to be learned? There were and there are. They changed some of the policies and procedures of the airspace. And, and of course, it was emphasized about putting an emphasis in training about decision making and, and aircraft performance and things like that. But it's got to go well beyond that. It's It starts with the individual pilot taking on that responsibility without being told, you must do this. I mean, it's survival. You don't just jump in your car and think that you're going to drive on an icy street without really, you know, evaluating, one, do I need to be there? Two, what's the worst that's going to happen to me? And three, what's the worst I'm going to do to somebody else? And and it's little things like that. That's just logic. And in this case, yeah, I understand they wanted to to do their little, quote, joy ride or whatever sightseeing trip. That's fine on their way out. But you got to plan for it because that is a tight piece of airspace. It does have special uh, requirements, if you will, about altitudes. And, and it does limit or inhibit um, what you can do as a pilot. It doesn't say that you know you can't salvage a bad situation by breaching the, the Class B airspace and talking to ATC and getting them to help you out for your mistake. But the fact is, at the end of the day, you're going to be alive. You may have to justify what you did, but you're going to be alive. Yeah, it's a shame. A career ended early and all the pain and suffering for the people that are left behind. Uh, I was just going to say, Todd, I know that, you know, when uh, when we're looking at an accident like this and you selected this accident because we try to get a personality involved as far as the accidents we've been talking about recently, um, it's sad that... <laughs> This is one of those accidents involving another personality um, that, you know, you know that as a pitcher, you have to exercise extreme good judgment in the pitches that you decide to throw. I mean, there's a strategy there. There's planning there. These pitchers don't just go into a ball game. They know what pitches they're going to throw to what hitters and things like that. And you wonder why that doesn't translate simply and seamlessly into a situation like this as a pilot. We have this fairly sophisticated airplane. The uh, the Cirrus is a glass cockpit airplane and with all the things that come with that. But nothing about this strikes me as a high technology situation. This is a high decision situation. It doesn't matter how sophisticated the glass cockpit was. They're very basic flying maneuvers that had to be executed it didn't have to be executed like a test pilot. It had to be executed competently. And for a bunch of reasons, they were in a situation where they could have gotten out of it several different ways. But in the heat of the moment, uh, there was either a lack of decision-making or incorrect decision-making or whatever it was. They ended up in the side of a building, and they didn't have to. And it's it's not just the decision-making on one pilot's part. You had two pilots in that aircraft. And neither one of them was able to at least remedy a bad situation with a viable solution. And that's the saddest part of it all. So, 
Well, my friends, I will uh, I will start with Todd and leave you to the second to the last word so that I can leave our final word to John. Well, uh, in this case, this is uh, the kind of flight I actually uh, had fantasies about doing when I was flying briefly on the East Coast some years ago. One day going down the Hudson River and seeing the tall buildings, seeing the Statue of Liberty. And hey, flying has its fun elements. That's a fun thing to do. Fun does not mean you stop thinking. Fun does not mean you stop planning. Fun uh, may take you from a vacation from your normal everyday life, but nature never takes a vacation. You have to deal with that whenever you fly. And John, I know where you're going to go. So let's go there with your last words. All right. And as always, planning for a flight starts before you get to the airport. If you're in a hotel room or you're at home, start thinking about your flight the day before. I'll guarantee you that they were planning this flight maybe a week before. And they were working on it constantly. Right? And this, this may have been an add-on, but they obviously didn't think their way through it. You know, if you want to fly down the side of the Hudson River, run around the, the uh, Statue of Liberty, come back up the Hudson or continue down over the New Jersey shore. Why did you have to come up the East River where we know it's congested? You're going to run into LaGuardia. There's four damn airports in, in New York. The airspace is very congested. Did they plan for all of that? You know, was he going to come up the river and try to get around LaGuardia and fly over Yankee Stadium? You know, that's a possibility. Of, he might have been thinking early on, but maybe ATC changed his mind. All right, here comes plan B. If he, if he had plan A to try to get up over Yankee Stadium and the ATC said no way, all right, then where's plan B? It wasn't to turn left and into those high-rise buildings, especially since I really think, and I, I need to go back and look at this, but I think the breakout to the right was pretty clear on that portion of the East River. That's high 72nd Street. What I remember in New York, and I worked there for a year, and uh, it was pretty clear to the right. But any any event, it was all poor decision-making before he even got to the airport, never mind got in the airplane. But even after he gets in the airplane, uh, let's assume that he did a good pre-flight. I mean, all of you listening to this, you need to do a good pre-flight on your airplane. What's his physical limitations? Uh, because there was such a big fire and, and uh, the wreckage was so badly destroyed, uh, there could have been something wrong with the airplane that we don't know about. I, I don't think so, but, you know, we don't know. We'll never know. So you need to do a damn good pre-flight, and you need to make sure that uh, when you get in the cockpit that you do follow the right procedures, and then as soon as you take off, put that head on a swivel. And that's another thing that may, he may not have done, all right, because he may not have been looking around or either too much or too little and didn't lost his situational awareness. And that's another possibility in this. Uh, so this, this particular accident is so ripe with, with things that pilots can do wrong that have a, have a negative outcome. It's just ripe with them. There's, there's you know, 25, 30 questions that, that any investigator would ask of this accident and most of which will go on an instant. All right, so please do a good pre-flight, put that head on a swivel, 
and ultimately fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe. Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at All Protected.